This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, welcome to Perceptions of Mental Illness. I just wanted to thank everybody for coming out and taking time out of their day. I know a lot of classes are here and a lot of extra credit going around. <laughs> Uh, but I do. I, 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 do, I did want to thank everybody for coming and helping us recognize Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May. Uh, our panel discussion is going to be talking about mental illness and, in particular, the myths and the stigmas that are held in our community and on our campus and by the large population as well. Uh, without saying, mental illness is very, very common uh, throughout human existence. However, also the most misunderstood. Uh, at least one of the most misunderstood uh, illnesses that are out there. So uh, that's why we have asked our panel members to come over and just kind of tell us what's real and what's not real. Uh, but I did want to initially give a hand and thank our panelists for coming and taking time out of their day, and to all of you as well. Uh, thank you to our departments, the Psych Club, the Psychology Department, LAS, to a special hand to Mitch Baker, please, for helping us coordinate this, couldn't have done it without his help, and to the library, and Lee Simmerling in the back, and Troy. Uh, but why don't we get started with introducing our panel members first. We have James Stevens. Raise your hand, James. <laughs> He's a licensed clinical professional counselor who works for Southwest Community Services uh, and has been doing at least five years of private practice, and his specialty is severe mental disorders. We have Amy Williamson. Department Chair of Behavioral Sciences uh, here at Moraine Valley, also a licensed clinical professional counselor, and has worked in various social service settings uh, for 10 years prior. We have Dr. Linda Brandt, a clinical psychologist who's been a counselor here at Moraine Valley's uh, Counseling Center and Career Development Center for over 30 years. She also teaches psychology and counseling classes and leads a variety of workshops in personal, uh, related to personal and career development. And, uh, all the way to the far right, we have Dr. Robert Isinga, the chief psychologist at the Tidley Park Mental Health Center uh, over on 183rd in Harlem. Uh, and Dr. Isinga has been working uh, for the Illinois Department of Human Services for the last 35 years, uh, is also the acting, well, I said chief psychologist, he's also the forensic director and has testified, if I'm not mistaken, to it, approximately 800 commitment hearings. And lastly, we have Dominique McCord, who is a staff therapist for the Family Institute at Northwestern University. And Dominique has uh, fi five years of mental health experience, and her interest is children and adolescents. Uh, so without further ado, here's how we're going to do it. Each panelist is going to give us a short opinion or idea of what mental illness is to them. And then once we finish with that, we're going to talk about the major stigmas that we have. And now, while we talk about the stigmas, I encourage everybody to kind of raise their hand. If you guys have questions, if you have a comment, something that you want to share, an opinion, or anything like that, go ahead and raise your hand. I'm, and I see a lot of people here, and I'm glad that we have a lot of support. I'm going to really try to get to everybody. So during the discussion, if you have anything you want to add, just certainly go right ahead. So why don't we get started with our first, and this is a myth that I hear all the time, 
And that one is, going to counseling means that you can't deal with your problems and that you are weak. And we're going to have Dominique start this one off. Dominique? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, often it, the, this myth goes that, you know, individuals who seek assistance are weak. In actuality, it's uh, an approximation that uh, over 57 million individuals suffer from a diagnosable mental illness a year. And so with that, there are people on a continuum who suffer from um, I, I don't like to use the term mental illness. I kind of use the term mental health because illness in itself implies that something's automatically wrong with you. And if we look at it on a continuum, I may be oversimplifying it, but if you look at it like in terms of a, a, a common cold, the severity of mental health, it, it ranges. Like a common cold, sometimes you can just drink lots of orange juice and you'll be okay in a couple of days, and or it can be as severe as a pneumonia or something where you need a little bit more help. And so when you think about mental illness and mental health um, in those terms, it's not as bad as people actually make it out to be or feel that it, it really is. And oftentimes there's this, um, there's an analogy, um, or not so much an analogy, but in our society we, provoke, we promote individuality and independence and all those things. And so when you have that coupled with, you know, anxiety or depression, it often makes it hard because you're asking for someone's help or someone's opinion on, you know, what's going on with you. And I tend to tell my clients it's kind of like you're, you're sorting through things. And, you know, it may not be as bad as you think it is, but you don't want to approach it as if you're, um, if it, as if it's a negative aspect of you. It's an acknowledgement of help. And you can look at that in terms of, uh, a, a strength that you're acknowledging the problem or acknowledging that it's a little bit more complicated than I, than I, as I would call it, the common cold. So that's kind of how I look at it, and I try I deal a lot with children, and you know when they're saying why am I here, you know what's going on. I try to make it as simple as possible. But what I found is that sometimes with adults we have to put it in terms that it doesn't seem as bad as it really is or, you know, because we are kind of humbling ourselves and going out and asking for help. And I think that's often hard for us as individuals in this society. To ask for help. To ask for help, absolutely. absolutely. And, and I get that a lot, too, when people say, you know, they know I'm a therapist. They say, Nick, do you know a therapist that you could refer me to? Now, nothing's wrong or anything. I'll say, no, I know, I know. Uh, but they are nervous about being perceived like something is wrong. Absolutely. Sure, and I, uh, thank you for your perspective on that. And then we'll definitely kind of go into a little more on the first stigma. But Linda, what would be your perspective on what you think mental illness means to you? Right. Um, I wanted to read, I wanted to start off with um, something from, it's called NAMI or NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And what I'm going to read from here, we've got handouts. And it's a great resource, it's a great organization and a resource to learn and educate ourselves about mental illness or friends, people that we know who have mental illness. And it starts out by saying that mental illnesses are a medical condition that disrupt a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and daily functioning. Okay, so it's just kind of that wide range of things, things that probably all of us can relate to. And just as diabetes is, a, diabetes is a disorder of the pancreas, mental illnesses are medical conditions that often result in a diminished capacity for coping with ordinary demands of life. And so with a beginning definition like that, I think it's also really helpful to kind of piggyback on what Dominique said, which is that 
Um, mental illness is this wide range. It's, it's along a continuum of things that we can all relate to, um, mild problems that we have in moods, feelings, relating to other people, to something much more severe. So. Thank you for the perspective. James? Um, you know, when I'm thinking about mental illness, um, I always like to use the term differences. And, and, and in thinking about differences, um, if you're thinking about uh, having issues or having some sort of challenges or struggles, you think about how we are um, in terms interpreting and then processing either internal information or external information. The differences somewhat lie in how we go about thinking about or processing our experiences, thinking about uh, how we process and interpret our interactions with others, and how those sorts of things then affect us, affect our mood, affect our feelings, affect our thoughts, affect our behaviors. Now, for some individuals, they may be able to process and interpret the exact same experience completely different than others. And so in that sort of framework, then that, as, as Dr. Branch was, was speaking about, that continuum of the, the various types of challenges, the various types of differences that may exist in the area of, of mental illness or mental disorders or whatever sort of phrase that, that one may want to use with that. Um, the internal differences, how we then process our feelings, how we process uh, our different thoughts, once again, thinking about being able to experience the exact same interaction, but then have it processed differently, which then may cause us to have different sorts of challenges, us to have um, different sorts of experiences. And those experiences and how we process that, that then relates to all the various different types of disorders or mental illnesses across the range of what we um, have kind of come to know. And what kind of happens sometimes is that in our community, we sometimes think that if there are the differences, if someone is processing information or experiencing something or having a, a tougher time with the exact same experience than someone else, then that automatically means that something must be seriously wrong with them. And, and, and I think that's the major myth that we need to, to try to put away with and, and that it doesn't necessarily mean, quote-unquote, there's something wrong or the person is bad, but that there is a fundamental difference in how they're interpreting and processing the exact same information, experiences, or interactions that we may also experience. James, thank you. Amy. Um, when you asked me to um, think about what mental illness meant, some words came to mind. and. Um, the first thing I thought about was that it's a challenge, that it's something that the individual has to, has to cope with and, and use some resources for. Um, but some of the other things I thought of were secrecy and pain and fear um, because a lot of times I think that people aren't familiar with what it means to have a mental illness. And if they're given a label, what, what does that mean? Um, and so... Uh, just a, a really quick story uh, that I heard that I think really illustrates this well. Um, there was a person who was walking along down the street and happened to fall into a hole. And 
they were down in that hole thinking, how am I going to get out of here? This is dark and scary, and I don't know what to do. And so they start yelling, help. And um, somebody walks by an acquaintance, and um, they see them in the hole, and they look down there and think, boy, it's dark and, and scary down there. And you know what? Um, call me when you get out of the hole, okay? I, I think I'll talk to you when you get out of the hole. And so the person's thinking, great, you know, I'm still stuck here. What am I going to do? So then a priest walks by, and the guy's going, help, help. And the priest says, oh, yeah, I see you down there. Here, say five Hail Marys, and, and you know, you'll be okay. He says, okay, well, I'll try this. And, and that didn't work. And so the person's, you know, still down in the hole and um, yelling again for help. And a physician walks by and sees the guy, the person down in the hole and says, um, uh, here's a prescription for you. Take these and, and you'll be fine. And um, tries that, doesn't work. And so the person's getting despondent and thinking, What's gonna, you know, how am I going to get out of this hole, this, this pit that I'm in? And somebody else walks by and um, he's yelling, help, help. And the person jumps in the hole with this person. <laughs> and the guy says, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck in this hole. What are, what are we going to do now? Now we both have to try to get out of here. And the other person says, you know what? I have a flashlight and a map, and I know the way out. And I thought that was so powerful because it really talks about what a therapist or what a counselor is supposed to do. It's to help you get out of that place. Some people might offer you insight, and those, might, those things might work for you, but for a lot of people... Um, they need more support. They need more help. And a therapist is that person who can move you out of that. Thank you very much, Amy. Dr. Isinga. Um, the question of what does mental illness mean to me? Um, I mean, I guess I want to start with uh, why I chose to work where I work. Um, I had, from the time I was in high school, uh, had this idea that I really wanted to know what made me tick. But then the more I learned from psychology courses and so forth through the college experience, um, I, I decided that um, I really wanted to work with the severely mentally ill, people that had really big problems. and. Uh, I uh, appreciate the comments made earlier about, you know, we are talking about a wide range of things. Well, just think of uh, where I went as at the one far end of that continuum that was talked about. Um, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to work with the people who... Um, are given labels such as schizophrenia, uh, such as bipolar disorder. Um, people who, when I started uh, way back in 1972, uh, the average length of stay in the hospital where I started to work was 30 years. Um, a lot has changed since then. Uh, the state hospital today has an average length of stay of eight days. Um, 
I remember a family that uh, I ran across on a Saturday while I was uh, working on my doctoral internship. Um, so I had to work Saturdays, and this Saturday had come. Uh, this Saturday, this family had come out to visit their relative, and uh, this family approached me with a question and said, um, "You know, um, I understand. We were told uh, by the doctor years ago that our son would have to stay in the hospital here for the rest of his life." But he's doing so well, couldn't he possibly uh, have get an off-grounds pass for a few hours or maybe even an overnight home visit? And um, this was in 1982, and I about dropped my jaw because we had been discharging people back to the community, so to speak, for a long, long time already. Um, but it hit me that uh, these people had been told uh, that their son would have to stay in the hospital probably for the rest of his life. That was before 1955 when major tranquilizers or antipsychotic medications were invented. Um, so uh, since that time, um, you know, things have changed vastly, uh, and I just mentioned that one statistic. Um, but when I think about the mentally ill, I think of those with the severe problems, uh, and yet at the same time, I want to emphasize that the difference between the 30 years that uh, was the average length of stay 30 years ago um, and the eight-day average today is because of advances in treatment. Some of the treatments that are done that have been talked about um, and uh, some of the advances in medicine as well. I think I'll just stop there. Thank you, Dr. Isinger. Uh, at this time, do we have any comments or opinions or anything from the audience? Uh, young lady, you have to come up front because uh, I don't think I can come all the way back there. I'm sorry? Good question. Uh, and I might ask you if, ever, if all the panelists can speak into the microphone, just so everybody all the way in the back can hear. Thank you. Um, eight days is not sufficient for cure, certainly. Um, but in many cases, it's sufficient to make sure that um, the uh, treatment that's uh, being offered and utilized is the right treatment. Um, that medication is properly adjusted and that outpatient uh, aftercare follow-up um, is at least uh, provision has been made so that it can be successful. Um, I really think uh, eight days is cutting it pretty close, and I say that because uh, I've seen many people who have gone out after eight days and then turned around and come right back the next day. And then I say, no, that first eight days was not enough. Uh, but then another eight days, and 
they may go out and not come back. Um, and they may, you know, follow through well with uh, proper aftercare planning. Okay, thank you. Uh, anybody else want to add to that or any other comments from the audience at this time? I just wanted to be sure that we – James, did you have a comment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I actually wanted to um, add to that uh, about whether the eight days was sufficient. And um, the question probably relates more to within that eight-day period that an individual is hospitalized, will there be a level of stabilization in that period of time that will then allow that individual to go back out into the community and then be able to function at somewhat of an appropriate level? I said appropriate level is using the word normal level because what's normal for one may be a lot different than for someone else. And what, in my opinion, what's been happening in the field of mental health services is that there's been more of a focus on making sure that individuals that may have more <laughs> severe issues and challenges are having uh, the proper options and, and, and treatment um, areas available to them in the community. So, Dr. just as Dr. Isinger was sharing, that you know, th uh, you know, in the past, the average stay was 30 years, uh, much longer. Um, it went from months down to weeks, and now the average day is maybe seven to eight days in an inpatient facility. Well, if we are able to provide a level of stabilization for that particular client and then have different treatment options available to them in the community, then not only are they stable, but now they're able to improve their level of functioning once they receive the appropriate treatment inside that inpatient facility. And James, thank you very much. Uh, is there any other perspectives that the panel would like to give on the stigma and the myth that going to counseling means that you're weak, means that you can't handle your problems? Linda. Yeah, I think it's really important to um, think about or distinguish even between, um, again, along the continuum, what's therapy and what's counseling. And so I really want to talk about counseling. That's my main interest, passion, and that's what I'm here at the college for, is to do counseling with students. Um, college is a time when people come here uh, it's a transitional time. Whether you're 18, 19, trying to figure out who you are, uh, what your career is going to be, what relationships mean, or whether you're coming back and you're 45 and you're trying to switch um, careers or you're getting a divorce or um, you need some new information to start kind of a new chapter in your life. So counseling is a process where Normal, everyday people receive help with normal, everyday problems. And so what better place to kind of figure some things out than coming to uh, a counseling center where you've got a relationship with somebody who's not a family member, not a friend, and you can really sort things out. And counseling also, I think, um, the purpose behind it is not to just fix a problem, but it, it believes strongly that people have the skills within themselves to problem solve. Um, and so it's a place to maybe learn how to solve a problem that's happening right now, but also to learn some skills that may even prevent them from happening in the future um, 
and to, and to live kind of a, um, a more effective life for the future. Linda, thank you. Uh, is there anybody in the audience that would like to add an opinion or a comment on the mentally, or on uh, rather, going to counseling means that you're weak? Uh, we have uh, one comment here. I have a question, actually. Um, once you know someone who is struggling with a mental illness and they won't admit it to themselves, is there anything you can do to help them? That's a good question. Hmm. Any other panelists would like to give their perspective on that one? Dr. Isinga? Again, the question was that somebody that has some type of mental issue and they don't recognize it, how can they get help? Um, I think that the throughout the whole continuum, a range of uh, what we're talking about as mental illness or mental problems, um, the... Uh, any, I think almost any therapist from any persuasion would agree that the therapeutic alliance is extremely important. Um, on my particular end of the continuum, the severe problems, and they're usually marked by such an extreme denial that, um, you know, out, even, even outside of the issue of the stigma itself, you know, nobody wants to be labeled this way. And uh, those who hold the stigma, the, the, those who, uh, who actually have the illness uh, or exhibit the symptoms are often the most prejudiced against people with those kind of problems. Um, but uh, so they're into denial. Um, and um, my, it was mentioned that uh, uh, I deal with uh, involuntary commitments. Um, that's one answer to uh, problems where uh, someone who, because of a mental illness, is unable to provide for their basic needs so as to guard themselves from harm, or uh, are uh, reasonably expected to inflict some kind of harm, physical harm, on themselves or others. Uh, the provision for involuntary commitment is for that purpose. Um, yet, I consider my job to be, as I go to examine those people, um, what I'm trying to do is build the therapeutic alliance. And it starts with a kind of a, a forceful, coercive thing um, in order to hold them long enough to really get a grasp on reality that will get them off some kind of a roller coaster or, or revolving door situation where they keep running into trouble and they keep uh, having problems and they can't see uh, how they're uh, contributing to the problem by uh, not doing something that, uh, for which treatment offers a help. So, um, yes, there is. Uh, there's, there's very few therapies that can be done without the person's um, Involvement, cooperation, uh, 
One of them, though, that does is uh, antipsychotic medication. It can really change a person's thinking to where they're at least able to look at um, how um, changes can be made, how, how uh, you know, other kinds of treatment can then be helpful. Dr. Reisinger, thank you. And I know uh, medications can also be involuntarily administered as well. Uh, That's correct. Thank you. Uh, we have another question here uh, from Vi. It's more a comment than a question. I'm going to kind of uh, illustrate the point that the mental illness stigma is out there uh, from my previous life as a person who worked in a psychiatric center. Uh, you know, we have the different codes, and code yellow means somebody's having a problem and everybody has to go and assist this person and here was this young man totally naked screaming looking at the psychiatrist and the team members and saying uh, you took away my family you took away my uh, dignity whatever you know he was telling all these list of things and now you want to give me bipolar I'm not going to take it okay so um, I saw I was a psychologist in a psychiatric center, and I saw a lot of professionals and paraprofessionals use these labels to actually, uh, you know, refer to the patients and individuals they were serving. Oh, it's my bipolar who did this. And uh, this prejudice and biases that actually professionals and paraprofessionals had towards the patients uh, was really appalling to me. And it's not everybody, but there is that, uh, you know, insensitivity, even among the people who treat uh, clients with mental illness. And if it doesn't start there, it's not going to go to the community and the general awareness in the public to accept these individuals as uh, people being different in processing information and not necessarily sick. Uh, and the word mental illness is still quite a big stigma. Thank you. I think we have uh, two more comments and then we'll get to our next one as well. Uh, uh, young lady in the back. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, mine is um, a question. How do you deal with the people in the world that say once you start in counseling or therapy, you're never getting out, they're going to milk you for every cent you can get, you're going to be there you know, for the next 30 years, they're going to see all your children graduate, and grandchildren, and so on and so forth. I don't believe it's true, but I do believe it's a real legitimate stigma or myth that's out there. We'll let the panelists answer, or whoever wants to. Dominique? Sure. I see clients um, in an individual private practice for um, Northwestern University, and often I think the average that personally, um, um, from what I gain from other therapists, is eight to ten sessions uh, before a family maybe cycles out and decides that, you know, they're okay now, you know, and, it, and again, that is on the continuum. I think that families are free, especially when it's fee-for-service, and we all know that um, seeking mental health services can be costly. And so I think families take it upon themselves to decide and usually come back and see you when they're in crises. And, you know, we work around that, and then sometimes they're able, you know, symptoms kind of subside, and, you know, maybe they see you for two or three months, and then a year lapses and they come back. I think it depends on the severity of, of what the family is dealing with and also how it impairs functioning in various systems in their lives. Thank you. 
And just to add to that, I think the goal of most counseling and psychotherapy is to teach the client skills so that they can handle the problems themselves for the future. Um, sometimes I like to think of uh, the counselor or therapist as like a family doctor. Um, you see a family doctor periodically, you know, throughout your life. You know, I mean, it would be great if we never got sick. Um, but we do periodically. And so when you hit little bumps in the road periodically, it's nice to go see your family counselor, your family therapist. But again, maybe just to revisit some old issues, make sure you've got those skills again and the resources, the thinking inside yourself to help you deal with them. So it's supposed to teach you how to take care of yourself. Okay, thank you. And it doesn't necessarily mean a lifetime of therapy. Absolutely. Oh, we have one more question, then we'll get to our next myth as well. Uh, or two more questions. <laughs> um, I know for somebody who's in therapy that it's really important to have family support as well as friend support. Um, what can you do if you don't have that support, or how can you get over it? Excellent question. Um, what can you do if you do not have the family support and you're saying that is an important aspect of treatment? Okay. One of the things that I talk about with my clients is finding social support systems um, and also mentors. Um, we bring someone things that are of interest to them and how to get them involved and out in the community. And sometimes it's things, I tell them they already have systems in their lives that are very supportive. Sometimes it could be a colleague, um, a social event. It could be um, finding those things that are naturally therapeutic to them and that enhance those things that um, strengthen who they are. And so we work around, you know, what are things in your environment that make you happy? Who are the people in your systems that you can go to for support and lean on? Who do you trust? You know, and sometimes that takes a, a couple of weeks of, of thinking about this, but I think that it, it might not always be obvious to people, and that's the most difficult part. So we talk about situations and things and, you know, how they impacted them. So that's usually how I operate from a, a perspective when people feel like there's a void of um, supportive systems in their lives. Thank you. Uh, and I think we have one more question as well, and then we'll move on to our next myth. Okay, now how can a person recognize mental illness within their self, like other people will be able to see it, but they may not be able to see it within themselves? What would be the signs or the first clues of it? Again, your question was, how can one tell that they're becoming mentally ill? What are some of the signs or warning signs? That's a good question. Not sure who would like to take this one. Okay. Amy? Uh, okay, why not? Um, I guess um, some of the things you can look for is really are you malfunctioning in any way? I mean, are you not able to do what you normally would do? Are you not able to um, get up in the morning anymore? Are you not able to go to your job? Are you not able to function in a way that you have in the past? Um, that would be one big sign, but um, because of the large continuum that mental illness exists on, it would be hard to say one thing in particular. So I guess, um, are you feeling pain? Are you um, worried about yourself? Are you anxious? Are you nervous? Are you depressed? Are you having feelings that you're not able to shake? Um, any of those kinds of things would be red flags or warning signs that maybe you want to seek out some assistance. I'd just like to add something to that. Um, one of the systems of therapy that uh, has gained some popularity today is uh, 
dialectic behavior therapy um, started by Marsha Linehan and um, they have a, a, an overall goal of treatment uh, it's to obtain uh, simply in three words a life worth living that's going to mean something different to each one of us but my suggestion then is if you wake up in the morning and you feel in any way that life isn't worth living um, that's a sign that um, perhaps you should seek some help okay thank you and of course we'll take from that that any marked change from previous functioning would be a sign uh, an another we're going to move on to one of our other major myths and stigmas that I always hear very commonly is that mentally ill people are violent. I know this one earlier here, the depression and anxiety are normal parts of life. I know we covered that, and that was very, or we did not. Uh, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. But mentally ill people are violent. Uh, that is one that I hear often, and I'd like to open that up to the panel just to give their opinion if they can. James. James, we'll start off on this one. Um, you know, this particular myth is... is um, is, is very interesting, particularly because, uh, of course, uh, we just experienced, uh, you know, one of the major tragic events, uh, really, in American history that occurred a few weeks ago in Virginia, correct? Uh, Virginia Tech University had that incident. And and so one of the things that, that usually is a, is a question to me, um, uh, I work specifically with adults with chronic mental illness, uh, so these are adults, both male and female, that have been experiencing very chronic issues and challenges dealing with mental disorders and mental illness for most of their adult life. And so the question that I get a lot is, James, are you afraid that while you're in your office they're going to attack you? Are they going to come after you while you're talking to them? And from my experience is, 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 that, is that individuals with any sort of mental challenges, mental differences, honestly are no more, quote-unquote, violent than any of us. And this is the example that I always like to use. If there's been anyone that has ever, well, first, if we kind of think about how we define violence for a second. If we think about violence in the, in the kind of strict terms of the thought or the intent to do harm to someone else, or the action thereof, actually doing it, or the thought about it. And so I kind of think about this in, 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 in kind of reference. If there's been anyone in the room that has ever experienced stop-and-go traffic on a Dan Ryan before, <laughs> 294, 290, 99, has there ever been any time where we just said, you know what, I could just kill that person in front of me. I can't believe they just cut me off. Does that make us violent? The individual that has a horrible day, I mean just a very rotten day, that goes home and, and, and kicks the dog. That is bad. It is bad. Absolutely. But then the question then is, then does that person then get diagnosed with a mental illness and do they need to receive treatment, medication, therapy, counseling, etc.? And so there is a a very serious myth there about that, well, people who have mental challenges are automatically violent. 
And clearly that's not true. There clearly are instances, there have been examples where people who have been um, struggling in the area of mental health have done violent acts. As we know, it just occurred in, uh, in Virginia a few weeks ago. But clearly that does not mean that everyone that experienced mental health challenges or issues will be violent. Um, I have a, a, a caseload that I directly provide um, uh, treatment for, for over between 30 to 35 individuals, once again, with chronic mental illness. And there has not been one incident that there have been issues of violence. Uh, the program that I work with, there are over 70 to 75 individuals with various ranges of mental challenges and mental illnesses, from schizophrenia to bipolar to major depression to, uh, I mean, just, just various, you know, different sorts of uh, illnesses, and there's still no areas, no issues of, of violence. And so we, I think that myth in particular is one that, we, that one that we really have to be very careful about, about how much we actually feed into that and then take instances that we've seen from the news or, or take instances that, that maybe we've heard of and then generalize that to an entire population or entire community of, of, uh, of people. James, thank you. Does anybody in the audience would like to add to the comments or give their opinion in back? We have one, two individuals. Okay, I'm going to come back there. Excellent discussion so far. This thing is not cooperating. Mary? You may, you may come on. I think we're good. Um, I teach in the nursing program here, and I teach psychiatric nursing and medical surgical nursing. And it has been my experience in the past 30 years that a nurse is more apt to get injured on a medical surgical unit or in the emergency room than she is on the psych unit. So, Thank you. And we had a comment in the back. If, if you'd like to come up, this microphone doesn't extend. Once again, you said that uh, you're asking if. I see. They're asking, yeah. Did you guys hear that? Okay. Go ahead. If physically sick people are just as violent, or if not, then people who have mental illness. I'm I'm not sure how to answer that because I. Not sure about the people with the physical uh, problems, um, though I do know that um, physical losses, for instance, uh, things like loss of limbs, uh, for instance, um, can trigger depression, which can be, you know, uh, violence in the sense of self-harm. Uh, or, or just bitterness. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have any statistics on how that relates, but uh, I can say as far as the uh, people with uh, severe uh, mental disorders, schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder, um, 
they are not all violent either by any means. That's one of the reasons why we have uh, a mental health court um, where uh, the ones who do present dangers in that regard um, and, and I thought James's uh, uh, illustration uh, was particularly pertinent because as I evaluate people for um, whether they're fit criteria for being subject to involuntary admission to a hospital because they're reasonably expected to inflict harm. Now, um, all that's needed in order to meet that criteria is a first of all a mental illness and then add to that a significant threat um, so um, a significant threat would be well uh, I'll give you an example uh, there was a uh, 75 year old lady who um, made several telephone calls to the chief, uh, the elected uh, clerk of the circuit court in Cook County. Um, I won't tell you exactly what her words were because they're awfully graphic, uh, but uh, in essence she threatened to cut the heart out of this person. That was enough of a threat even though she had never done anything violent to uh, result in uh, a period of involuntary admission that lasted almost 60 days. Um, and, uh, but those are relatively rare. Um, what we look for is when, when people's view of reality is so distorted that uh, they feel that there's an emergency situation, a situation of desperation. Um, and, and for this, uh, in order to just empathize with this, um, I think of, for instance, uh, there was a time when I was serving in Vietnam and I was carrying an M16 and I've never uh, carried a gun in the 30-some years since then don't have one in my house, uh, would never want to use one, and don't think of myself as somebody who would kill. But back there with that M16 in my hand and under those circumstances, I was ready to kill. So uh, if you think of someone whose view of their situation is similar to that, they feel that they're being persecuted. I had a person a couple of weeks ago who felt that um, a doctor some 1,300 miles away was performing witchcraft operations that were assaulting her. And uh, she had thought of getting a gun and uh, shooting him. Well, that created quite a stir uh, for a while, even though... Uh, she subsequently vigorously denied that she would ever get a gun. Her, her view of guns was something like what I just expressed a while ago. Uh, nevertheless, um, 
it's something that has to be examined carefully and, and we're often trying to sort whether we're dealing with somebody in an emergency situation like this where they feel like uh, they have to do something just to preserve their life or are they just uh, making that emotional expression that we all make at some time or another like oh I could kill you um, which you pick up uh, just a TV program of old slapstick humor and you'll see uh, somebody say that maybe 45 times in 15 minutes. Dr. Isinga, thank you. I, I have uh, another comment back here, young lady. Well, um, we, we think about stigmatism for mental ill people, that they're going to be violent and other things, but I think the main thing is that we are taught in school that mental ill people, that people with mental diseases, um, it's genetically linked. Like, if their parents had it, their grandparents had it, they're most likely to have it. If they have an identical twin, 50% of the time the identical twin is most likely to exhibit this disorder. So we think that once you have it, you're stuck with it, you're never going to let it out of you or your generations to come. And that's why the stigma is so hard to break. Now that your comment was that genetically people get stigmatized as well. Okay. Um, I have a comment about the genetic. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it comes to major mental illnesses, illnesses uh, the causes are up to this point still unknown. Yes, we think there's a genetic link because across all cultures, uh, when you're talking about uh, schizophrenia, for instance, um, you're talking about somewhere between 1 and 3 percent of the population. Regardless of the culture, regardless of what's going on, regardless of how much trauma a culture may experience, uh, across cultures, that 1 to 3 percent stays pretty much the same. Um, now, so that means that uh, out of a couple hundred people here, uh, if we just picked at random, we might be able to find uh, two people or four people with schizophrenia. But now suppose you had another pop a group of people here who were all identical twins whose identical twin had schizophrenia. Now suddenly we're talking about 50 out of 100 rather than 2 or 3. Uh, and similarly with bipolar disorder, uh, 60 out of 100. So yes, there is a genetic component, but it's not 100 out of 100. Doesn't always mean you're going to get it, you're saying. That's correct. And certainly uh, there was a comment from the audience that was, people do have the right to be mentally ill don't they? Yes. Uh, we have one more question here, and then we're going to move on to one of our other stigmas. I have a question. In your opinions, what does mental disorder exhibits the most violence? Which mental disorder is associated with the most violence? Interesting question. I heard bipolar. Someone might say anxiety. 
you know, uh, that's actually a very good question. Um, and what the, the, the comments that I could make on that is that what I would probably say is that um, disorders or, or any sorts of challenges that may cause the individual to have whether it's a brief or a very long stint of a somewhat of a break from reality, so to speak, that um, somewhat appropriate reason, reasoning and functioning and insight is void for a period of time. Now, we can kind of see that particular sort of symptom or issue with individuals that experience um, symptoms of schizophrenia, sometimes of bipolar disorder, um, even sometimes individuals who experience issues of major depression. But in my opinion, I think it speaks more to that break, uh, uh, that break from reality that says, you know what, now for whatever reason, whatever internal reasons that I have or however I'm thinking about the experience, now I am going to act in this violent form or fashion towards another person. Um, so just to kind of answer that question, I, I really think that it, it does depend, it can be seen in different and various um, diagnoses of mental illness, but I think that fundamental sort of piece must be there, that, that break from reality. So you're saying a numerous amount of disorders can exhibit that? I believe so. But yes. mainly the ones with the psychotic, the, with the ones with the psychotic episodes? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Amy? to that there's a couple um, antisocial personality disorder which which many times has um, some some violence violating the rights of others kinds of thing and when I worked with juveniles I worked with a lot of kids with conduct disorder and frequently they would exhibit uh, violent tendencies and, and get go into rages and things like that and uh, it, it was pretty commonplace for those kinds of behaviors Amy, thank you. Uh, another myth that I commonly hear about, too, is this one here. Feelings of depression or anxiety are not a normal part of life. Now, I do hear that often from a lot of people, like, this, you know, something wrong. It shouldn't be happening to me at this time, no matter what age. Uh, Linda, can you lead us on this one? <laughs> How many people here have never felt depression or anxiety? A little louder, I'm sorry. How many people here, let me... Do the opposite. How many people here have felt depression or anxiety? Okay, I hope you're all normal. <laughs> Otherwise. So obviously these are normal feelings. And in fact, what I think is really important is that these kinds of feelings are crucial to our mental health. And there are things that we're supposed to pay attention to. And we get into trouble when we don't pay attention to those feelings. So for example, an analogy would be you touch a hot stove. It hurts, right? You slightly burn yourself. And you take your hand away. If you didn't have the ability to feel the pain, right, you might keep your hand there and really hurt your hand badly and severely burn it. So it's important that we have those sensors right in our hand. It's really important that we have feelings of depression and anxiety to warn us. To, to, they are warning signals that we're supposed to pay attention to something. And when we don't pay attention to them, that's when we get into trouble. Uh, an example would be there was a student who couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate, 
schoolwork was going down the tubes. Um, he was partying. He was doing all kinds of activities, doing all kinds of things. And finally, he, he had to come into my office because he wasn't doing well in school, and he was now on academic caution, probation, whatever. What we got to is that he was actually feeling very depressed. He had just broken up with a girlfriend, but not only that, his father was dying of cancer. But he, he worked so hard not to feel the feelings of depression that he got himself into trouble. That he was doing all these activities and everything that he could because he didn't want to feel those feelings. Well, we don't like feeling when we burn our hand, right? We don't like feeling anxious or depressed, but they're important feelings for us to pay attention to. Sometimes we can figure them out, understand what that's all about, and sometimes it's really helpful to get some professional help to figure it out. So thank you for letting me address this one because I think it's something that happens to all of us. And instead of trying to get away from those feelings, I think it's important to pay attention to them and figure out what they're really all about. And you're saying it's part of being human, too. Absolutely. We wouldn't be human without those kind of feelings. Right. Okay. Uh, anybody in the audience would like to add or add their opinion or uh, comment on to that? Lauren? Say I'm like depressed or something, and they're like, "Well, you know, I have depression, and I don't have to do these things." Like, I personally think that some people abuse it. What do you think? I don't know. I think there is some payoff to um, being able to use the diagnosis in that way, um, but hopefully that's few and far between. I mean, I don't, I don't know the statistics. I, I don't have any numbers, but I, I think there are people who will use that as an excuse to abdicate responsibility to get out of things. But um, my history, the people that I've worked with, it seems to be something that they struggle to overcome. They don't want to use that as an excuse. They want people to see them as somebody who's competent and who's somebody who's able to, to live up to the expectations. Well, don't you think sometimes it's like an attention thing? Sorry. Do you think it's an attention thing? Humans are human, and uh, if behavior is reinforced, they will repeat it. So if for some reason they're getting more attention and more rewards being reinforced for that negative behavior, they will continue it. Um, they also need to believe that they can get more attention, more positive attention by doing something different. Uh, but it, that's a, it's a tricky question. And, and, you guys, and you guys are saying that while some may use that in a classroom possibly or anywhere else in life, uh, most people keep it confidential. And most people don't want to use that as an excuse to get or as a reason for getting attention. Like the kid who acts out and gets hit, um, they don't really want to get attention that way. But sometimes if that's the only way they think they can. So. Okay, thank you. We're going to take one more question here. Uh, yes, uh, she kind of asked one of my questions, but I, I just, uh, huh? <laughs> um, question uh, is uh, the word illness, you guys think the word illness is appropriate, uh, considering an illness would be a, more of a change of biological or physical in the body? 
that's an interesting question. So you're saying, is, does illness mean a biological problem? Would anybody like to address this one? This is a good question. Is it more personality or is it biological? Um, actually, uh, I prefer not to think, uh, you know, that there's, as a, as a psychologist uh, trained in, in um, uh, the culture of psychology as opposed to the culture of medical school, I would kind of really prefer if it wasn't uh, a medical problem, uh, yet uh, it's difficult to argue that uh, for many of these things that we call mental illness, uh, it turns out that the medication, uh, the chemical changes uh, that work on the neurotransmitter systems are what turn out to be the most effective treatment. And you can't get anywhere with the psychological approaches, if you will, without uh, doing something medical first. That's for certain uh, major mental illnesses, not all of the range of things that we've been discussing here today. Thank you, Dr. Azinga. And we are a little short on time. We are going to continue for a few minutes. Uh, but I would like to ask, there is another stigma that says that mentally ill people are poor or less intelligent or less able than other people without an illness. And if I can get the perspective on this particular one, because I do hear this a lot as well. It's a common myth. Amy, can you lead us on this one? Sure. Um, I guess from my own personal experience, I'll just give you another quick story. Um, I was um, had the opportunity to lead a, a therapy group, and one of the things that I was able to look at before I started this was some uh, sheets uh, with the the axes, the diagnoses that these people had, and many of them, uh, all of them actually, were borderline personality disorder, and then there was a lot of depression and bipolar disorder and um, substance abuse and um, people who were from supported living facilities, people who were, um, had a history of, of multiple ECT treatments and lots of medication. And I read all these things and I thought, wow, you know, how, how functional is this group? Are these people going to be high functioning? What are, what are they going to be like? And when I got into uh, doing the group, uh, what I found was that uh, the lowest education level of the women in the group was a bachelor's degree and there was actually several with masters and one with a PhD um, in the group. They were very, very intelligent women um, who just happened to have this really um, stigmatizing history when you look at it. Um, so, and if we look just statistically, we do know that people with mental illness uh, the majority of them are average to above average intelligence. So it's, it's definitely not true and that mental illness cuts across all, all socioeconomic backgrounds. Just because you have an illness, you're saying you can do anything. You can drive, work, balance a checkbook. Well, most people can't balance their checkbook. But, <laughs> no, but, but all those things. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, any comments from the audience on this particular one? Young lady right here, I'll get to you. Excellent, excellent discussions today. If you don't have the financial support, 
it won't be documented, you say? Oh, you, you, you won't be able to afford to go to the doctor if you are poor and mentally ill. I mean, I have my own opinion on that, but I'll let the panel. Well, uh, I, I, think, I think that, like, often economics is a problem in uh, seeking, uh, seeking and obtaining assistance. And I think individuals, um, I've worked in community settings as well as in a private practice setting. And in my experience, um, often, you know, the challenge in getting in, I think, for people, for free services is hard. And so when individuals have that weight, they tend to back away. But I don't think that that, that necessarily means that there aren't services out there and available for individuals of lower economics of a lower economic status. Okay. Dr. Eisinger? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, add that um, I see mental illness as not a respecter of persons. There are people from all walks of life, all levels. Uh, I've seen people who are uh, severely retarded, who have uh, uh, debilitating schizophrenia, but I also saw the number one graduate in a class of 4,000 from Harvard University uh, with a master's in anthropology uh, suffering a very disabling schizophrenia. So it's not uh, anything to do with intelligence. And as far as the poor part of it, um, mental illness is costly um, so that uh, and, and that's true of other illnesses as well. Um, you know, your uh, net worth can drop significantly because of either a physical or a mental illness. And then another aspect of this, too, is uh, the question of how we treat. Um, so, yes, if you look in my state hospital, where the services are supported by uh, the general budget, taxpayer money, uh, you are going to find more of the indigent population that have not been able to find work, that have not, uh, don't have insurance, and so forth. Um, <coughs> in some cases, um, they become poor because of the impairments of the mental illness. In other cases, they may have started out poor to begin with. Um, but, uh, you know, if uh, you have a silver spoon, so to speak, you probably won't wind up at Tinley Park Mental Health Center. Thank you. Uh, James? Um, just wanted to make just one quick comment is that, um, is that you know, presently there are a lot of different resources for individuals to be able to take advantage of if they are seeking assistance with any sort of mental health issues. Um, in particular, I think about college students who have um, the ability, like you students here at Moraine, who have a counseling center here, where, from my understanding, the counseling center is free of charge? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, you know, whether I'm working or whether I'm just a full-time student, I have, you know, access to assistance through, you know, licensed professionals to help me in, in some of those issues. Individuals in the community who maybe are not working, who are um, 
who have the need for the public service system, who maybe are receiving Medicaid or Medicare. There are other facilities for that. There's another population of individuals who are working, um, but maybe do not have a lot of extra money to shell out for services. Well, a lot of times, at your employer, they have uh, a mental health services that are built into your insurance plan. Okay, and it's just like going to your medical doctor. You see a particular uh, uh, therapist or psychologist, and, and there's a copay, and, and it's covered underneath your insurance. There are other services, there are other uh, mental health centers, counseling centers, where allow, that they allow individuals to pay on what's called a sliding scale. So they'll say, well, okay, we're not making very much, so perhaps you're able to receive services for a much you know, decreased amount than what the normal fee would be. So it's really just about being able to access the different sorts of resources um, that, are, that are there in the community, uh, really regardless of the uh, economic status that you may presently be in. And James, you're also saying somebody who uh, has a, an income, a yearly income under a certain amount can also apply for public aid as well to be able to receive those services through the state? Most certainly, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have one more comment here as well. Um, I have kind of a two-part question. It's a little off-topic, but it's something that relates back to what Dr. Izinga said earlier about um, counseling and, and treatment of that sort being somewhat ineffectual without medicating the person first. And I have a question. I th do you think that the willingness of doctors to prescribe medication before um, counseling and therapeutic treatment has become a little too lax. Um, I, I find that maybe it's the willingness to shell out a prescription before um, a real effort has been made to work through the problem in um, a different way. And then the second part of my question is what, in your opinions, do you think is the state of um, mental hospitals in this country right now? But do you think that they're at a good place? They're at a bad place? Do you think that they're overcrowded? Um, is the treatment not what it should be? Um, I know you were talk just talking about how a lot of people cannot afford treatment and such. Do you think that that has an effect on the kind of doctors that um, are in the hospitals and so on? So the two-part question is, number one, are doctors quick to prescribe without giving proper counseling? as well and what is the state of the current what is the current state of the mental hospitals uh, and their conditions uh, again because my particular bias is uh, a psychologist as opposed to a psychiatrist I didn't go through medical school sometimes I think they are a little too quick to prescribe um, yet uh, on the other hand, um, some it is true that uh, uh, unless you have the calming effect of an antipsychotic for someone who's in a psychotic state, um, you can uh, go through all sorts of uh, varieties of counseling. Uh, or other talk therapy kinds of interventions, and it just won't be effective. Um, 
Now, what was the second part? Just to make sure that everybody got what you're saying, Dr. Isinger, is that with certain psychological disorders like schizophrenia, they need medications first before you could do counseling. Yes. Okay. And the other part of the question was, what are this? What is the current state of mental hospitals? Like, how are the conditions? Well, um, when I uh, started 30 years ago, I mean, one of the most famous movies that attracted me to the idea of working with the severely mentally ill population was the movie Snake Pit. Um, we don't have snake pits anymore. I think I did start in a snake pit. Um, snake pit? <laughs> um, yeah, in the sense that uh, it was a very crowded place. Um, I was the first psychologist hired. Uh, the initial population that I had to work with was uh, there were 4,000 patients. And um, so obviously, and they were spread across uh, six sides of building. So, uh, so, you know, I just divided my work week uh, and said, okay, I have a half a day for each building. And, you know, the staff that were working on the units directly could tell me what to do. Um, do you have time for lunch? <clears throat> um yeah, I would have time for lunch, but sometimes I might not feel like it. Uh, but, um, you know, I also started at a time when the, uh, the hue and cry actually was based upon recommendations made. Uh, an Eisenhower commission made recommendations that uh, uh, deinstitutionalization be adopted as a national policy. Uh, President Kennedy put that into effect with the Community Mental Health Centers Act of 1963. And so the state hospitals were emptying out. Um, it struck me that uh, some of the things that were called institutionalization uh, were actually symptoms that were present before the person ever got into the institution. But aside from that, um, you know, uh, the idea of uh, removing people from the community, making a self-sufficient, isolated community, uh, had extra pitfalls. And it was better to view these people as a part, you know, to normalize the condition along with the, you know, improved treatments where that became uh, more possible, uh, the less removed, the better. So, um, you know, the uh, idea of a continuum of community treatment uh, where, yes, at one end of it you do have the removal to a, a state hospital or even a secure forensic hospital may be necessary at some times, but not forever. Uh, they're still needed, um, but their uh, place and, and how much they're needed uh, is probably significantly decreased. Thank you, Dr. Isinger. So clearly uh, the hospitals today are not snake pits like they once were. Right. Uh, 
and are more like the hospitals that you're going to see in our communities, like at Palos or Christ or anything like that. Uh, we do have one more question, then we're going to wrap it up. I know we're, we're, we're extending our time here, and I do thank everybody for coming out uh, and staying. Uh, in human nature versus society, uh, who decides what is natural, uh, what is uh, mentally inappropriate? So what you guys would call a mental illness. No, that's something I know we had talked about early in our discussion, but who decides what's, me what's abnormal or not? is what you're asking. Right, between human, human nature and society. Well, I, I would just like to start off uh, and then defer to any colleagues here, but um, for one, it, you know, okay, so uh, we professionals may uh, assess problems and make diagnoses and decide what's <laughs> abnormal or not. Then we also have uh, checks and balances, such as the mental health court, um, so where judges can overrule us and say, you know, uh, I think that your concept that this person is mentally ill uh, has not been proven. So you're saying professionals and professionals and the, the mental health law have mandated that. And I certainly think everybody, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful panel and discussion. I just wanted to give a big round of applause to our panelists for coming out and spending their time, and to all of you, and to Mitch Baker. I can't see Mitch. He's back there. Let's give a special hand to Mitch as well for helping plan this, to the library, Lee Summerling. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys, and thank you all for, for attending. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.